welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. I'm Colette Allen and I'm with Tom and Paul today to bring you up to scratch on the latest things since we last spoke a couple of weeks ago. We'll be discussing the government guidelines banning the use of resources that endorse anti-capitalism, employee surveillance in the home working environment, Associated News Limited's victory in the ongoing Meghan Markle debacle, Colleen Rooney's defence, um, and finishing up with a funny little snippet from the new Enola Holmes film. So starting with the anti-capitalist material, this is to do with the new government guidance that has told schools not to use resources from organisations that have expressed a desire to end capitalism. The Department for Education guidance issued at the end of September for teachers involved in setting the relationship, sex and health curriculum categorised anti-capitalism as an extreme political stance and equated it with opposition to freedom of speech, anti-Semitism and endorsement of illegal activity. The guidance also states that schools should not under any circumstances work with or use material from groups that do not condone illegal activities done in their name or in support of their cause, or that promotes victim narratives that are harmful to British society. So this has come under a lot of criticism in the past couple of weeks, um, especially from Black Education Alliances and the Coalition for Anti-Racist Educators, who've said that this guidance would prevent teachers from using material from groups like Black Lives Matter and Extinction Rebellion. Also, Labour leaders have said that this would mean that certain aspects of their history couldn't be taught in schools. So um, it's a very kind of all-encompassing guidance and I think there's a lot to be said for the fact that they're claiming that they are protecting against they're protecting free speech but really what they've done is no platformed a lot of organizations that are against the current government's stance oh this is outrageous utterly outrageous um Tom what what are the implications of this um bad aren't they I mean, those on the political left have been very quick to come out and condemn the uh, guidance because it, uh, to those on the political left, looks um, McCarthyite. This is the government trying to expunge a whole set of political values um, by lumping them in with genuinely concerning material, um, banning material that expresses racist views and racial hatred, fine. I don't think anybody would object to that. I don't think there are very many teachers in the country that would ever consider using it, but I suppose there might be some. Um, But this is such a broad uh, restriction um, that it's really potentially very harmful. And if you think about it, it's not limited simply to material that is itself anti-capitalist, controversial though that would be. It's a ban on using material by any organisation on any subject. If that organisation has at any point expressed the desire to end, including by legitimate democratic means, the system of capitalism under which we currently uh, live. So it could, for instance, include a pamphlet on climate change by the Green Party. Um, Now, what's also troubling is that Whilst this is limited on its face to the uh, curriculum on relationships, sex and health education, um, presumably the government intends that material that is extreme in one subject is also regarded as extreme in others. So we could see more um, 
I think we could see further restrictions with, with this sort of material coming down the line. It may well be a, an early shot across the bows. My concern, really, I mean, apart from uh, the, the, the political concerns, um, in legal terms, is that this appears to me to be pretty blatant infringement of Article 10, right to freedom of expression, which includes not only the right to impart information, but also the right of school children to receive it. And any kind of blanket measure like this, and this is a pretty blanket measure because it is cast in such broad terms, seems to me to be um, unlikely to withstand an Article 10 challenge in the courts. But the main reason being, I can't see that there is a legitimate aim prescribed under Article 10, Paragraph 2, that this could be pursuing. And if there is a, such an aim, the only one that I can think of that it would fit is um, prevention of disorder. Um, and that, you know, would be based on the presumption that anyone who uh, encounters this material immediately goes out and gets involved in some violent disorder. Um, otherwise, the measure would be clearly disproportionate to that aim because it's a blanket measure denying however many hundreds of thousands of school children we have in our secondary school system every year the opportunity to access any of this material at school. Um, so uh, there is a legal challenge. I forget exactly who's bringing it. Um, and I imagine that that legal challenge will, will do pretty well. Um, we, we, well, we hope. Well, I certainly would hope so, yes. This is ludicrous. Um, there we are. It's, it's, it's utterly ludicrous. I mean, the, the, it's, it's fundamentally anti-free speech. And I think that what whoever has dreamt this up has, has failed to realise is the, the fundamental point that it's not for government to tell children what to think. It is for government to try and instill certain values in uh, children and therefore to direct uh, teachers to instill those values, values that democracy is built on, plurality, tolerance, etc. But how is tolerance to be developed in a child through intolerance? This is a point that we don't seem to have, have fully appreciated as a society. If we tell people that they can't think something or they can't discuss something, we're denying them their autonomy, but we're also denying them the opportunity to see why this thing is bad. If you simply tell someone that you cannot talk about this, you cannot hear these things, well, that doesn't provide any sort of education opportunity. It's simply a form of censorship. It's the type of censorship that I thought we had fought for 400 years against the monarchy to bring to ourselves, to allow ourselves to have this type of thing. And what's even more outrageous is that the House of Commons is meant to be a symbol of freedom of speech. After all, it's the House of Commons that fought for the right to speak freely without consequence by the monarchy. And yet now, this house has become a symbol for censorship and a symbol for repression and a, th and a symbol for authoritarianism. Yeah, and I think it's I it's interesting. It's an interesting trend that's happening. That this comes right after 
um, putting the Extinction Rebellion on the counterterrorism list a few weeks ago, um, which, you know, it's now been taken off. But this idea of creating groups as enemies of the state, um, putting the state up as something that, you know, is under threat from these different ideologies, is it, this is not the first example of this, even in recent weeks. Look, this we're talking about education on uh, sex, health, and uh, relationships. Now, I can't quite fathom in my head how anti-capitalism fits with a discussion on sex, relationships, and health. It's a long time since I was at school, but I, I distinctly remember these sessions being particularly awkward because it, you'd got some sort of fuddy-duddy teacher trying to describe to you the act of procreation using uh, everyday objects, usually um, cucumbers, uh, which had condoms placed on them, which frankly was a was um, a rather useless skill that I learned because I've never once put a condom on a cucumber in adult life. Nevertheless, quite how um, the uh, anti-capitalist uh, people have sex, uh, I don't know, but I can't imagine that they have uh, sex in a particularly dangerous way. Sure, they might discuss the Communist Manifesto whilst engaging in coitus, but I don't really see how that can end in injury. But let's not forget that this is the thin end of the wedge. If the government is able to convince a court, well, this is just you know a, a subject that's not worth the trouble uh, of the court's time, and the court allows that as a kind of de minimis type uh, proposition, what's to stop the government then dictating which parts of history can be taught or which parts of uh, the English literature can be provided to children? You're absolutely right on the literature point there, Paul, because you know there are plenty of authors who espouse through their works, even if they their, their own characters don't necessarily advocate it, the timbre of their works um, espouse anti-capitalist views. We can look right back to the works of Charles Dickens, if you want. Charles Dickens' works are full of lessons about the evils of greed yeah, uh, and uh, yeah. financial exploitation, power relationships. Yeah, I can certainly see how um, uh, anti-capitalist material is relevant in relationships education. If if you're going to have some, if you have a really thoughtful teacher who wants to run some sessions on power dynamics in relationships, um, there is plenty that can be learned from. Uh, left-wing analyses of power dynamics that could be transposed into any kind of relationship education. So I could see how it's relevant. And by on the, on the fringes, though, the possibility of it, I think it really impoverishes uh, the education that there is the potential for teachers to to bring to their students. Yeah, but that I mean, I don't see that going to the heart of the um, the these sessions. I mean, the, the example you gave there speaks to the fringe uh, aspects of of the discussion. So I don't I don't really see why this has taken up government time. Frankly, I, I can't see this as a major problem, given that this government cannot tackle COVID in a particularly convincing way. It can't tackle it at all. It's still ploughing ahead with outdated. Uh, methods in a in a sort of ludicrous way it's struggling to uh, deal with brexit in fact it's trying to keep brexit off the uh, agenda at all 
Um, what? Why has it turned its attention to this in the first place? Maybe but, it's a nail on the head. It's a great big distraction. Yeah, a skeptic might well say this is the old dead cat being thrown on the table. Um, this this just distracts from the very matters that you've spoken about. It, it, it could well be interpreted as a, a line that got thrown into some guidance with the uh, with every intention that it would uh, incense the political left and provide some cover for the government's uh, difficulties. But Tom, I want to take you back to a point that you, that you made early on about uh, sort of outlawing uh, racist speech, and um, I completely agree with you. I think the difficulty is that that when you and I talk about racist speech, we might perhaps have a particular definition uh, in mind, and I think that also applies for sexist speech. Now, we want our children, I would have thought, to um, respect each other. Um, particularly men to respect uh, women and we don't certainly don't want to breed another generation of misogynists the type of misogynists that we currently see in the house of commons but at the same time there is a, a dialogue to be had perhaps in schools perhaps not in schools um about uh, t- trying to make sense of the tra- transgender debate that's happening online um for children that might be confused about why J.K. Rowling, for example, uh, takes such an anti-trans stance. Now, um, I don't agree with J.K. Rowling's stance at all, but that's beside the point. The the point is that you might also have a sensitive teacher who tries to introduce feminism into the debate, and I would be very concerned if uh, a government was to try and shut that down on the basis that it was uh, sexist or uh, transphobic. And it wouldn't even need to now. What it can do is say that the uh, material that you're using in order to illustrate the argument in favour of feminism is produced by an organisation, for example, a political party or a pressure group, that has at some point espoused an anti-capitalist view. And feminism and anti-capitalism don't always go hand in hand, but they often do. You find uh, plenty of writers and organisations that will run both those perspectives together. And so that entire block of material that you could use to illustrate one view is prohibited on the basis that is produced by an organisation that espouses a different view um, on a different matter. That, that to me, is the, the crux of this. Yeah. And I completely agree with you, the problems with it. Yeah. And, you know, we want, we want our children to think. We want our children to be able to battle through life being able to evaluate arguments on on different sides and not simply r- regard controversial subjects as taboo i mean for example i think that the feminist debate over trans uh, people is the perfect example we should be able to as a mature society have a conversation about that respect different viewpoints there is enough space for us all to to think differently about things without trying to shut things down I guess what they've almost tried to do in this guidance is say that they are supporting that idea of not shutting things down because they're claiming that free speech is on their side here. And I think it's something that, you know, we've touched on in previous newscasts that the the people, the first person to claim they're protecting free speech then runs the show. No, but the, the, well, we have said that in the past, but 
Look, free speech isn't about sanitizing public debate. That's the opposite of free speech. Free speech isn't about saying, right, listen, everyone, uh, we've processed the debates ourselves and we've concluded that these are the acceptable outcomes and this is what you must now learn by rote. That's not freedom of speech. Listen, there, there are positions that we uh, adopt as individuals that other people will find offensive. Uh, my support of the trans community, for example, other people have found offensive. They've uh, called me out on Twitter, for example. That's absolutely fine for them to do so. That is freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is different. It's not about agreement. Mm. Uh, but I think it's more that protection of a certain side of speech that maybe the government feels right now is getting shut down by the whole council culture, etc. That supporting, they want to encourage an environment that supports capitalism. And so having conversation, being allowed to have that conversation without being slammed down is what is the side of free speech they're supporting. I agree with you. I'm just... No, I, I think you've introduced a really good point there, um, Colette. And if I can just briefly respond, cancel culture isn't anti-free speech, so far as I'm concerned. Cancel culture isn't stopping freedom of speech. It might make people think twice about what it is that they want to say, but people can still say what they want. People can object to cancel culture, and people can say that cancel culture isn't the way to achieve the aims of the cancel culture uh, project. But to say that cancel culture is anti-free speech, I think just entirely misses the point. Far too defensive. That's not what free speech is about. We meet difficult speech with more speech. That is the essence of freedom of speech. The other issue here, and just as one final point, um, is uh, you, you, you say that the government might just be trying to um, protect pro-capitalism views from a kind of constant barrage of criticism. Uh, But the fact of the matter is we live under capitalism. We have lived under capitalism for a very long time. It is the status quo. And, um, you know, this this is a pro-capitalist government that's seeming not to realise that it is in power and has the system that it wants to have currently supported by enough people for it to have an 80-seat majority in the House of Commons. The idea that is they're trying to, that they might well be trying to uh, present here, that this is a minority view under attack that needs to be protected, um, <laughs> it, it's, it's something we're seeing a lot more of in right-wing governments across the world. If you look at the United States, the message that comes out of the right there is that the right is under attack. Um, despite the fact that it has been in power for quite a long time. Uh, In this country, you see it too, despite the fact we've had a a right-wing or at least right-leaning governments, if I'm very generous to the coalition, um, since 2010. It's a decade of right-leaning power. The idea that that, that this is anything other than the status quo, the norm, and that which is receiving the most popular support at the moment is is simply bogus. But it is an idea that is, is being put out there. It, it's ridiculous. And, and Tom, just to echo that point, it's not simply the last 10 years. We have had a, a conservative government um, for the last 100 uh, years since the end of the, the, since the demise of the Liberal uh, Party. And we've just, uh, the reality is that we've simply had pockets of time where we haven't had a conservative government. 
But we are essentially a conservative uh, nation. If you look at the breakdown of, of thinking, it's it's pretty much the red parts, the Labour parts are the cities. The blue parts are the rest of the country. We, we are essentially a country that uh, wishes to move forward uh, incrementally, uh, slowly, and um, we're, we're not a nation of intolerant people or, or hateful people, um, but we are a nation of people who is suspicious of change. And that's why we, as a nation, I think, tend to vote for um, conservatives. But the ideology underpinning the Conservative Party is not under threat by anybody because no one has the power to threaten them. I'm going to pick up on your suspicion of change and use it to move swiftly on to our next topic because otherwise we won't get through all the things we want to discuss. And that is employees who are under increasing surveillance from their employers, who are also suspicious of the changing working circumstances that COVID has resulted in. Um, We've seen a lot of employers take decisions to keep staff working from home in the past couple of months um, and for the foreseeable future as COVID cases rise. And with this has come increasing levels of employee surveillance. And this ranges from simple checking in to face recognition software that logs when an employee is away from their computer, which was a policy implemented by the consultancy firm PwC. The thing is, these spaces are still the home and ultimately they are private. But when you're on the company's dime, do they have some sort of right over you during certain hours of the day? Uh, well, yes, they, they do have a right. Uh, that right is that you fulfil the terms of your contract. And uh, any company is entitled to uh, employ a management structure that ensures uh, their employees work as efficiently as, as possible and that their employees uh, are responding to uh, managerial decision making. Um, what employees don't have a right to, though, is to control the human beings themselves and to uh, ensure that those human beings uh, are living in a way that suits the company. So the company's rights end at the point at which um, managerialism ends. Yes, I would say that there is uh, a legitimate interest on the part of employers in surveilling the work that is done, um, but not in surveilling the individual. Um, I think there's a, there's an important distinction there. It's one thing to be able to track the work that's being done, determine whether it's of sufficient quality and whether it's been done at times that are convenient for the company. Uh, depends on what the company's doing, of course. Um, but when it comes to observing the the, the individual, um, then that becomes intrusive, um, and it would be akin to having a manager standing over you every moment of the, the the working day and worse than that because they're standing over you in effect in your own home that's the point where it becomes intrusive um there have been uh, quite, quite a number of um european court of human rights decisions on uh, privacy in the workplace over the last few years some have gone in favor of privacy some have gone against it depends on the facts of the case but broadly speaking the European Court has staked out a position supportive 
in broad terms of employee privacy over things like, for example, uh, internet browser usage, email history, that sort of thing. Um, so I can't see any significant likelihood that the European court would row back on protections uh, under the European Convention. Um, it'll also trigger um, bits of European Union law. Uh, I'm no European Union lawyer, but um, there are protections um, under EU law for employee rights that will also come into play here. There is there is a tension though, and and this is a tension that I would like us to explore in a in a future podcast. But um, whilst whilst Tom's absolutely right in everything that he said, I think the tension comes with uh, whether the employee uh, in their private life lives up to the values that the employer espouses and whether if the employee doesn't live up to those values, the employer is entitled to terminate the contract in the extreme case or otherwise discipline uh, the employee. Now, Partly this is a question of privacy, partly it's a question of free speech, or at least I, I think so. And to give you a vivid example, um, there's been a, a recent uh, decision, <clears throat> excuse me, there's been a recent decision in Scotland uh, called BC against the Chief Constable of the Police Service of Scotland, which involved uh, a disciplinary inquiry and misconduct proceedings uh, against 10 police officers um, and uh, part of that investigation concerned WhatsApp messages that were being exchanged by those police officers uh, which were found to contain um, uh, sexist and racist and anti-Semitic um, messages or at least this is this is the conclusion of the inquiry. Now the, the question there that I think needs further investigation is whether it's right that an employer could uh, use private WhatsApp messages or anything like that against the employee to terminate uh, their uh, contract, or whether this sort of thing is only appropriate in certain extreme cases like the police. I think you can make an argument for why the police should be the exception. Uh, or whether it, it's wrong altogether. A point uh, related to that, Paul, is that uh, this case involving the police also uh, calls to mind the um, leaked Labour Party report into the activities of people at its central HQ um, and its, you know, its administrative um, uh, division, as it were, um, uh, came out around about Easter time um, uh, in which a number of Labour Party staffers uh, WhatsApp messages were leaked which contained s- some similarly unpleasant though it sounds like not quite at the level of uh, the unpleasantness in the, uh, the police case you mentioned uh, similarly unpleasant uh, material so um, this actually will, you know, ha- however this tension, I agree there's a tension there, uh, however that tension ends up being resolved legally will have implications um, in, 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 the, in, in, in the cases that are, are going to, and I'm sure the Labour Party report is going to result in 
more litigation it's already resulted in some um it's going to have implications for for that yeah i mean just to just to go back on something you just said there tom i mean you you mentioned about the, the uh, messages the police had exchanged being concerning the the difficulty i have is that the labels attached to those messages are of course concerning but my fear is that those labels can sometimes be used conveniently and can cover a, a broad range of uh, subject matter. And, you know, my, my concern is that those kind of labels are very serious and should only be used in circumstances where there's an underlying intentionality. Yeah, where you've got people who are uh, not only espouse racist views, uh, sexist views, anti-Semitic views, but but are hateful uh, in the way that they they use them. And th- the reason why I feel quite strongly about this is because, well, for a number of reasons, but actually I was contacted uh, several years ago by a police officer, whose name I won't mention, who was being investigated for the dissemination of racist and sexist uh, text, text messages. Um, which he told me um, were uh, meant to be light-hearted uh, jokes, uh, and he was he was very concerned because he himself didn't um, you know didn't espouse any sort of hateful hatefulness towards anyone else, but had been captured by this label. Um, now, the, the the point is, I'm not making any judgments on what he did or what anybody else did. Um, but I do fear for the safety valve argument, because I think the safety valve argument is very important, which goes something like this, that, you know, we all need moments in our life where we can we can be ourselves uh, and we can uh, be silly and selfish and express views that other people may not like and, other, and views that we may not espouse ourselves uh, without consequence where they affect no one else. But when you're tackling something like systemic racism in major institutions like the police or in politics, surely you do accept that you lose a right to make certain jokes. Well, I think this is where the, the tension arises. Look, I'm not, I'm not going to try and solve that tension by um, some kind of simplistic di- dichotomy. Uh, th- there are circumstances, of course, where you know, racism is uh, hateful and anyone that thinks they can treat someone else differently on the basis of their skin um, is, yeah, doesn't belong in the in the police force. Um, at the same time, human beings uh, exist by making fun of themselves and making fun of others. Um, and so I, I think it's important that we don't lose... Uh, sight of that need to be able to let off steam okay let's move on for now to Megan and Harry and the recent victory or as it's being spun in the press of um, Associated News Limited as they've been allowed to amend their defence to include um, a claim that the Sussexes cooperated with the authors of a new biography called Finding Freedom, which was published in August this year. And the publisher has argued that Megan gave the author's information about the letter to Mr. Markle in order to set out her own version of the events 
Judge Francesca Kay has allowed the application and said that the amended defence did not raise new defences, but added uh, further particulars to ANL's case. Is this really a major victory for ANL? Surely it's just adding more information to the misuse of privacy, their submission that in misuse of privacy, that there was no privacy in the first place. Yeah, it's not a major victory. It's uh, a small procedural matter uh, that might well have been done simply to drag things out a little longer, to be honest, adding in um, an, another document into the defence in the form of the biography. Um, I do think it's interesting that the uh, the press generally are painting uh, every successful procedural application by the defendant newspaper in this case as a significant victory. I mean, if after all these victories they end up losing the case, um, then uh, that will look particularly bad, one would think, because uh, by their own, uh, if you go by what the press are saying at the moment, then they're doing really, really well in this case um, with all these victories. Um, I suspect this is being introduced to give the newspapers another piece of embarrassing information with which to hit the Sussexes when they take to the witness box, if indeed they do. You're not paying attention, Tom. The, uh, if, the, um, if the newspapers were to lose this, as they should lose it, and lose it quite spectacularly, of course, the, the reason for that will be because some Remainer judge has uh, been working against them. <laughs> Enemies of the people. Yeah, exactly. Now, look, there are three defenses. Uh, sorry, there are three claims that the uh, that that Megan has brought. Um, privacy is only one of them. Uh, the other two are data protection and um, copyright. Now, uh, I'm not going to launch into a, a a deep analysis of this, but but simply just to say, the letter is her property. If she has. Uh, collaborated with someone else uh, in the sharing of the uh, property that might might have an impact on the privacy claim in terms of public domain uh, type arguments but it's not going to affect the copyright claim because the point is um, you can't simply just use somebody else's property as your own and if you recall the the defence of uh, ANL, which let me just say again is pathetic uh, by any standard, um, it had absolutely nothing to say about copyright. the The defence itself is so weak on copyright that this changes nothing. She, I can't see a way in which she will lose on the copyright claim. Also, surely it doesn't do much for the misuse of privacy either, because I thought one of the main things that came out of Campbell is that overstep, which turns what would be a legitimate story in the public interest into a breach of privacy, and that being the misuse element of it. And surely unauthorised publication of a letter is the misuse. So it doesn't, the privacy element is kind of futile. Yeah, I'm well. I I suppose I suppose that a point on privacy. I mean, we shouldn't have to help them. They should be able to do this themselves. But but their their point on privacy is presumably that her entitlement 
to privacy has been weakened by her own uh, generous use of this letter in in other uh, fora, um, which which suggests, I suppose they're going to say, which suggests that actually she doesn't take this uh, the privacy of this letter particularly seriously. So it so it might weaken the, the her claim in terms of the balance. Either it might weaken her claim in terms of the reasonable expectation of privacy, although I can't really see that succeeding. Um, but it might weaken it in terms of the strength of the privacy claim. However, have we got the chronology right on this? Is uh, are they saying that the publication of a letter that takes place after they have published it somehow weakens her right to privacy? I'm I was also confused on that I I imagine but I'm guessing what they're saying is they would have collaborated with the authors of this book around the same time that the letter was published by um Nail on Sunday which was I believe last February and if this book came out in August potentially they were already speaking to the authors of Finding Freedom when Nail on Sunday published the letter but they but they published that letter in sort of January time, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, I think it was February last year. I thought it was before. Fe- I thought it was January because I'm, I'm uh, sure maybe the maybe the case oh. started in February. Either way, but early last year. Yeah. Um. I I can't I can't I, I can't I just can't just can't <laughs> just can't. Well, um. As you can't, let's move on to the other, the, the next step in the Wag of the Christie saga, which is um, Colleen Rooney has filed her defence. Um, and um, I think, Tom, you were particularly interested in, in what's happened here. Yes, I like this case. So this is um, <laughs> Rebecca Vardy. Um, it's now suing. Listeners will remember this case from earlier podcasts. Uh, Rebecca Vardy suing Colleen Rooney over Colleen Rooney's Instagram sting operation that apparently revealed Rebecca Vardy as the source of private information to the media about Colleen Rooney um, that she'd been trying to unmask for some time. Um, this is, this is ended up, as we predicted on the podcast at the time yeah. when this happened, a libel case brought by Rebecca Vardy saying it wasn't her, and now Colleen Rooney, of course, is put to proof of it being her. Colleen Rooney has filed her defence. I haven't read it. It's 55 pages long, and whilst the media have written about it, they haven't released it, though um, there are ways of getting these documents from the court service. Um, uh, but I've read the write-ups of it in the newspapers, and as you might expect in the tabloid newspapers, the, the legal detail is somewhat lacking. But what we can glean from it is that uh, Colleen Rooney is relying definitely on the defence of truth because she says she's standing by the fact of her allegations and she's, uh, she's, she's uh, provided what she says is evidence that supports the truth of it. Um, but there's also a mention in the, the write-up in The Sun um, of uh, Colleen Rooney saying that she believes that uh, exposing... Rebecca Vardy, as the alleged uh, leaker of this information, uh, is in the public interest. And that suggests strongly that there's a Section 4 uh, reasonable belief that the publication is in the public interest defence uh, being run. And if that's the case, that's a kind of fallback position if the truth defence fails. Um, that would be very interesting because we've had so little case law grappling with Section 4. 
Um, we never actually had much case law dealing with its predecessor, the Reynolds defense. Um, but since the Defamation Act of 2013 came in, we've had very little, we've had a little bit, we've had very little on Section 4, and this would be an interesting uh, development. They're still talking uh, uh, about, um, Colleen Rooney keeps saying how she wants to settle the case, um, which doesn't chime terribly easily with a 55-page defence plea for <laughs> truth. Um, but um, you know, this may end up not going to court, but it is looking pretty acrimonious. So, um, yeah, fingers crossed we get a ding-dong legal battle on this and a fun judgment to go through. Wonderful. Can't wait. What a public service they're providing. um okay and finally a uh note from the other side of the pond the estate of arthur conan doyle have decided to sue netflix for their new film enola holmes which looks at the younger sister of sherlock on mycroft and shows elements of sherlock's character where he softens and becomes more respectful of women and um the doyle estate are claiming that this is elements of Sherlock's character that were written about in later books that um, are still under copyright. Yes. Um, all right. So I'm not a copyright expert, but um, what in essence the claim is about is the characteristics of Sherlock Holmes. So the estate are claiming um, that they can copyright Sherlock's transition from hard-nosed, emotionless sleuth to much warmer, open-hearted individual. Um, and therefore, though the appearance of those characteristics in this particular portrayal um, of Sherlock Holmes, played by Henry Cavill in the movie, um, is a violation of that copyright in the character. Um, and the characteristics of him. Um, as I say, not a copyright expert. Doesn't sound like a terribly likely case to me. Um, uh, if it does go further and not get knocked on the head, we'll then you know we'll probably go get a copyright expert to come on and talk about it. At the moment, it just looks like a uh, a kind of litigious shot across the bows um, that will probably get just settled in order that it goes away um i do wonder if it's just you know henry cavill just comes across as warm-hearted and lovely i mean maybe that's just inevitably what happens if you cast henry cavill in a role um i i don't mind you i i have seen him play a pretty he's a pretty nasty character in the most recent mission impossible so uh you know maybe it's not him maybe that is intentional yeah i didn't i didn't think he was that nasty I, I thought most of the film he was he was quite nice. I don't know why I'm talking about this. Didn't didn't he try to kill everyone with a helicopter? Yeah, but we've all been there. <laughs> it's um it's it's pretty good film though actually, Enola Holmes. It's uh family friendly and, and worth watching, especially if we end up in lockdown two point <laughs> uh, I I agree. I also endorse the film. Oh, are we doing film reviews now? Maybe that's been the spin off, couldn't we? Filmcast. The only ones that have had copyright issues. <laughs> That'd be a great series. Right. Wonderful. All right, well, that's, I think, a good spot to finish on. Thank you very much for joining me both. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Colette. And um, thanks again for listening to Newscast. As ever, follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast on Twitter. Um, and we will be with you again soon. Bye.